You're listening to World Building for Masochists. And we're wondering why do we do this to ourselves? Because sometimes your editor tells you that your book needs more of it. I'm Mike Chen. I'm Cass Morris. I'm Rowena Miller. And I'm Marsha Ryan Moreska, and this is episode 34 for The Reluctant World Builder. Well, hello, listeners. I am so excited to welcome this week's guest, my friend, Mike Chen. Mike, introduce yourself and tell us about how amazing you are and all of your wonderful work. (laughs) Um, My name is Mike Chen. I write science fiction with feelings, which... (laughs) Um, and some world building, but it's really, really hard for me to do that, which is why I am on the Reluctant World Builder episode. Uh, my debut novel, Here and Now and Then, um, came out in 2019. It was a time travel with feelings story. Um, back in January, I wrote a pandemics with feelings story called A Beginning at the End, which was really interesting to release this year. Um, I have a story in the upcoming Star Wars from a certain point of view anthology which is the best thing ever. <laughs> and in January, my superheroes with feelings story comes out. We could be heroes. Um, and yeah, so I really struggle with world building, even though it is part of the job. And that's why I'm here. <laughs> Listeners, if you could just see Cass Morris's face every time Star Wars gets mentioned when we have a star. <laughs> she makes the most gleeful next faces. Time too. <laughs> Oh my gosh. I, I fangirl all of them. I told you. And and this one's even more special because I knew Mike before any, before either of our books were out. Um, mm-hmm. We were in the same debut group mm-hmm. way back when. So it's, it's so fun to get to see friends doing amazing things. I love it. And Mike, I love your brand of like sci-fi with feelings because these are the <laughs> books that I throw at my reluctant sci-fi fantasy reader friends who are like, I just don't know if I'm going to like read this. You will love it because it's character driven, <laughs> it's relationship based, it's awesome. Um, and they all come back to me and they're like, I really liked that. Do you have anything else like that? And I'm like, yes, <laughs> welcome. Welcome to the broad, wide, diverse world of sci-fi fantasy. So it's really there's exciting like, to have uh, you here. There's there's like, I don't know, maybe 10 of us like sci-fi with feelings authors that we all like get asked to blurb each other's books. And, <laughs> you know, it's like... Every, every time, oh, I liked uh, Kay Chess's book. Which one would you like? Oh, you'd like Mike Chen's book. You like Mike Chen's book? You would like Pun Shepard's book. And so we just all get tossed around in a circle with each other. That's good, though, because it just it builds in a fan base. Like, that's wonderful. Yeah. And what that's a wonderful what, I mean, like... circle it is. I mean. Mm-hmm. <laughs> They're all really friendly people, too, which is the good part. One of the fascinating things about just this business in general that over the course of time realizing how very like you know it's about somebody told me it's about the size of a large high school and that's you know that feels very accurate and it's just like a large high school it's it's got it's it's got its various social circles and that's (laughs) the romance writers are in that wing the sci-fi writers are like in the basement (laughs) man i'm the weirdo in latin club again The fantasy writers kind of hang out with the sci-fi writers, but not all the time. It's like the theater kids and the musical kids, you know. They're <laughs> yes, there's some crossover, <laughs> but there is definitely, you know, not everyone is in the same boat. So, do does anybody have any other announcements or news, or have they? <laughs> no, no. No, 2020 is just melding into this like. <laughs> newsless fog of confusion that i don't know i I mean this will be old news by the time this one airs but i only found out two days ago that my release got pushed from november until december because of pandemic nonsense Hmm. so yeah this is happening a lot so keep on your toes readers because the dates are getting juggled in a lot of places because all the books that they that they pushed back in March and April, they're like, well, we pushed them to now. And now the printers are like, um, we can't print this many books at once. <laughs> so there, there is in fact an upper limit to how many pages we can print simultaneously. <laughs> right. Yeah. I'm so far the only person I know that it's happened to this fall. Like I knew some people in the spring. I am so far the first victim of the fall that I know of, but I am certain I will not be the last. <laughs> it's, 
it's going to happen. I know some so. late summer people who got pushed, I think, three months or so, mm-hmm. but they, they're thinking they might get pushed again to, like, spring. <laughs> yeah, and I know a bunch of springs who have already gotten bumped to summer, so they're, ma- they're making room for them. <laughs> it's like we all know it's going to happen. I'm telling myself it's good because I told myself I wanted to have book three drafted before book two was out, and now I have an extra six weeks. Yay! <laughs> Which is good because I'm nowhere close. So. <laughs> but I, this was just giving me the gift of time. That's what this was. Definitely, definitely a gift of time. <laughs> That's all I've got. At the time of this airing, Marshall, how long will it be until yours that I just finished reading comes out? Um, I think it's one month away when, when this episode comes out. It comes out on October 27th, and that's People of the City, which is the 12th and last book in the first phase of the Meridane things. And Cass, you're the one who just finished reading it, so if you want to, to hype it... Be my hype man for this one. I... Oh, you want me to flatter you on air? I will certainly do that. I wouldn't um, hate that. It's magnificent. It's magnificent. My friend has done a wonderful, tremendous thing. It braids together. Like, if you've been following the Meridane series, it braids things together so beautifully. Um, I really liked, especially in, like, the first part of the novel, how the end of one scene chains to the beginning of the next. It's... Rhetorically, that's called anadiplosis, um, <laughs> and I love it. It's a re- it's a rhetorical nerd thing, but it was just it was beautiful, and the way it all comes together. And there's such an exciting moment when all the characters are starting to collide. And I was sending him messages on Discord, being like, "Ah, this thing is happening, and I'm so excited! It's it's really wonderful, and I'm ready for the next twelve books. So get on that." Okay. <laughs> How does one write twelve books <laughs> with spreadsheets and planning and? <laughs> <laughs> And hey, a lot what of a obs- great segue. Into- <laughs> hey, what a great segue. <laughs> with, with a lot of planning. Hey, what a transition. <laughs> I mean, yeah, it's, you know, that is the thing of like, how do you, how, what, when you're doing this sort of big world building thing, big, you know, planning thing of, you know, you want to do all these books. And so like a big part of, you know, what I've always done in terms of, in, you know, when we're talking about like, how do you start these hard world building projects is I do a lot of, a lot of spreadsheet work and a lot of planning work and a lot of outline work. And, and I mean, listeners, you can't see this, but I, I could hold up the, the like world building Bibles that I have, you know, here <laughs> of like all the planning that I do. They're printed. Yeah. Oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> That's hardcore. I, I print them because like when I'm working, I don't want to like, like change my rhythm of like oh i have to look this up like by switching programs out of this so i want to have things that i can just like thumb through and be like okay that's it and then and then keep going and same thing you know on an outline level and all that so like i am a huge planner which then you know becomes a huge world builder because i i like need to have my sandbox set before i can really start working and that's why i've been like such a absurdly masochistic world builder like (laughs) hey that's the title of the show (laughs) (laughs) and we have a title but you know and i can i can definitely appreciate i mean we're we love geeking about world building on here that's what we do and what a lot of our guests like really enjoy but i mean from an objective standpoint a lot of this can feel kind of tedious you know, especially if what's sparking you or setting you off is, um, you know, character driven or plot driven, or you've got an aesthetic or a scene that you want to like just get into and start writing. Um, I don't think we'd ever say that there's only a one right way of doing things, and that's setting your sandbox first, because people have different like motivations and drives for writing. Um, and I can appreciate the folks who are kind of like, yeah, that does not sound like fun. And I don't want to do it first because I would never finish anything <laughs> <Me>? ever. <laughs> so Mike, what, like, when do you find yourself confronting the world building thing? Uh, so I start with, so when I start with an idea for, for like just a basic plot or like, you know, an elevator pitch level idea, I'm kind of looking at like when I feel good about it, then I have to think like, okay, logistically, how is this actually going to be supported by the story? And like, what decisions do I have to make to kind of craft the parameters of the story? So like for here and now and then, like I had to know how far into the future, like the future time was gonna be, 
um, what kind of technology, like, was it going to be magic or technology to, to do the time travel? And then, like, the time travel, like, what was the, like, the rough science so I could know, like, what they could actually do and what they couldn't do. And I would uh, reverse engineer some stuff into it later where I'm like, well, I, I need there to be, like, a, you know, an assistant on this mission just because of plot purposes. So I wrote in, like, some, some rules about, like, you know, you need two people to do this because it's, like, the rules of their agency. So for me, I'm, I'm working really reverse engineering with a first cut being just the high level stuff like with um with we could be heroes i only knew what their basic powers was um and, and that was basically and i had to like build everything out more as i was actually writing it and the same thing with the beginning at the end like i knew there was a pandemic i knew how many people would die and i knew there was going to be a quarantine and that was basically it all the other details come in with reams of spreadsheets later in later drafts because I, I tend to write in layers so then, like, layer number three or four is usually when I start putting in the world-building stuff. I like that term, reverse engineering. It it seems like a model I've seen, I think, a lot, like, in television sci-fi and fantasy, that they will sort of build a thing and then explain a lot of what goes behind it later, or even in, you know, supplementary materials. I mean, think about the original Star Wars the world building happened a lot in the EU after the movies were out and right. was sort of built onto it, not explicated in the thing itself. So I think that reverse engineering is a completely valid way to go about it. You don't have to do your mask. You can't have to do your masochism on the front end. You can do your masochism on the back end. It's, it's, you, know, it's... <laughs> you know, from a plot perspective too, it's, um, I don't know if this is urban myth or if it's actually true, but when I heard that when, when George Lucas and Steven Spielberg were writing Raiders of the Lost Ark, like they came up with the set pieces that they wanted first. Like they wanted the boulder, they wanted the pit of snakes, you know, they wanted X, Y, Z. And then they wrote the plot around that. And then they wrote like the, you know, the circumstances and context around all of that. Um, so I'm, I kind of work that way just because like for me, I am much more interested in in the character moments, and it's so much easier for me to write dialogue and um, and, and like emotional beats. But then, like you asked me to actually write describe like what does this future car look like? I don't know. <laughs> it's a car and it flies. <laughs> Maybe it's blue. <laughs> so... Does it have cup holders? Oh, <laughs> well, I you know I did not include that detail, so I have no idea. <laughs> Cup holders are very, very important in your future cars. <laughs> I, like not none of like the Star Trek shuttlecraft have cup holders. It's it's really like you know, just saying they they don't. And like, what's up with that? Like they people complain about the seatbelts, but I'm saying where are the cup holders? Because he's constantly drinking his tea, but he has no place to put it. <laughs> but if you think about it from a logistical perspective, so this is actually kind of how my mind works. Like when I'm actually. When I'm presented with a situation where I have to think it through, we talk about cup holders and flying cars. Okay, so if you've got a cup holder and if you have to like suddenly drop or you suddenly bank up really fast, what happens to the liquid in there? And then you would have to need some sort of cup that seals completely or is like tip resistant or something, or it's encased in like a little bubble or something like that. So a little gyroscopic mind... cup holder. Yes. yes. Exactly, yeah, yeah. And so, so my mind can run like that but it needs a prompt first mm -hmm. so i have a really hard time coming up with it like completely blank so so if i say like i want to write you know a story where the people from the year 3000 meet the people from the year 600 i would not be able to do anything but if you give me a plot and then i start thinking about the specific circumstances and like what are the objects they're dealing with and how does it adapt to their context then i can start to work with it so that's really why i have to work backwards with it have you run into any like oh shit moments where you realize that um, <laughs> some <laughs> some, part, <laughs> some part of the world building or the plot is like butting up against something that you really wanted to do but you already kind of put yourself there Okay, so I have like backed myself into a corner. Well, actually, so my my current book uh, that I'm I'm drafting right now. This is the one about um, a family that kind of gets broken apart because their one the their children gets abducted by aliens, and he he comes back 
15 years later and he claims that he's been fighting like an intergalactic war kind of like like a mass effect type of war and then the family has to like kind of resolve like is he lying or is he not so a lot of feelings in there but i had to like do the space opera part and i'm really struggling with that because it's like as much as i love space opera coming up with these things on my own is is really tough and there was a um in the opening scene i wanted to show how the brother like escapes from from like from being trapped by like the bad guy aliens and escapes back to earth and i'm like i need some sort of plot device for this like if maybe he like throws this switch and like he does this other thing and then he escapes this way and i was talking with kb wagers who writes excellent space opera um and <laughs> she goes well, if things are blowing up, then you're just going to lose power, and then uh, that that explains why he gets separated from his materials. And I'm like, oh my god, that was so easy. Like, I don't have to world build all these complicated things. Just go with like the simple thing of shit is exploding. So <laughs> I think like the one thing I tend to do in these early stages, and my agent calls me on this all the time. He's like, you're overcomplicating things. If you the simpler you go, the easier the story will be. So I think like when I get back into a corner, I kind of like take a step back and think like, okay, what do I need my characters to do? What do I need the plot to do? And then if they wind up being like, well, they they have to get from A to B, but they took all these side trips to C, D, E, and F, and then argued about G. It's like, no, they don't have to do that. They can just go from A to B and throw in like three lines of exposition and you're there. So simplify. <laughs> that makes me think of um, The Good Place, <laughs> the line about if you have the a problem I just throw a Molotov cocktail and then I had another problem <laughs> Jacksonville so I mean you know it's, it's good writing advice just throw a Molotov cocktail basically <laughs> so if you're in space and you need your character to get out of a spaceship just cut the power and you have every excuse to, for them to escape <laughs> Sometimes that is just the easiest thing. Just just blow something <laughs> if up. If it's a fantasy world, add fire. If it's space, cut the power. You know, you're basically the same thing. Big fan of setting things on fire. <laughs> it's it's a very in fiction. In, in fiction. It is a very effective character sure. motivation. Like, you know, it's like why do we have to do this? Because fire. And <laughs> literally. Why do we get separated? Because there's a wall of fire. I, I remember that I had the hardest time when I was writing the Fenmir job. I should say in my book, um, in that I had like in the outline this thing where at one point things go bad and all the characters get separated in four different ways. And then I thought to myself, it was so hard on a character motivation level to have them like agree to separate because it's like there's no way that they'd be like so i had to have like catastrophic things happen to keep them apart to keep them from like no we got to go back and save the others and that was always that was the most excruciating part to write because and they had to do essentially the equivalent of no there's just fire and you just can't (laughs) (laughs) yeah i mean like literal or metaphorical fire or explosions or losing power or you know whatever like instead of like trying to come up with all of these like layers of you know cool world building details that might veer them this way and might veer them that way it's like no you can back out of this corner just simply by like shit is impossible so you split up <laughs> or, or something <laughs> like that well i think it's it's a good like reminder that you know if you are a geek on world building person that overcomplicating it is is sometimes not the way to go. That sometimes just you know blowing it up, <laughs> losing power, some I like mundane right thing <laughs> that you have in our world can work just as well in you know any kind of second world or sci-fi world. Yeah, the sheer number of things I have carved off of stories because it was like you just that is a complete tangent. It connects to nothing just because you thought of a cool thing does not mean you have to include it. (laughs) It's just, yeah. So I think I come at this from like a literal opposite direction than you three. Like, do you, do you start with like, do you make basically a world Bible first with a loose idea of the narrative and, and then you kind of merge them together? Cause I am on the complete other end where I will write a beat sheet 
I know the character motivations, and I know very light world building, and I have to build it up over time as I round out the characters and the plot. For me, it's really a lot of it in tandem. So what I start with is is usually pretty character-driven, um, but I also have this kind of feel for what the world is, and a lot of it's pretty aesthetic, like... Um, I could, I could see what a city street would look like, or I could see what a dinner party looks like. Um, kind of like things that are probably going to relate to the plot in some way, but just to kind of like immerse myself in some ways in the character's world. Um, so a lot, that's a lot of where I start from. And then as I start to build the story, I run across all the things that I realize I'm going to have to kind of like deep dive on. Um, you know, pretty early on, often geography of some kind, I have to work out because it's going to come into play in some way or another. Um, pretty early on, depending on the story, you know, some politics may have to come in if it's a political story. So um, that's, it's kind of like a back and forth in tandem sort of thing. Unlike Marshall, who like builds builds a whole playground to play in first <laughs> I, I i totally have to build the playground before i even get the action figures out because i need to you know <laughs> i need to know like i can't quite ever figure out what the story is going to be until i have a strong sense of what the setting is going to look like because for me that defines so much of how the story is going to work and so like with velocity of revolution like I the only thing I knew starting that was that I wanted it to be like diesel punk in the sense that I wanted motorcycles and radios. But beyond that, I was like, I I I need to do I need to figure out the world building to figure out where that story is gonna be and how it's gonna work and all that because I don't think I would have figured out like that there is this revolution going on or what they're revolting against or how that works unless I had done the the background history of you know all the different invasions and colonizations that had happened on this, in this Island and why the people who are there are broken up the way they are. And so I needed to do that work before I could even figure out what the story was. And that's usually the way my brain works for these sorts of things. And I, I am always like in awe of the people who can more like do discovery world build of like, Oh, this is this, I need this to work this way. So this is how it's going to be because I hit that chapter and and realized that like that that amazes me um like the idea of like oh there I decided I just needed another continent across the ocean so it's there and I was like <laughs> how how can you how can you do that? how can you like I, I I always feel I need to know all the weird things that don't necessarily that won't even end up on the page and won't necessarily apply just for the sake of like knowing the fullness of the the three-dimensional space and but i mean but that's just the way my brain works and i'm kind of amazed at people who don't need that like that 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 astounds me the 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 people who can who can just write and then be like oh and i i realized that i needed a holy order so i just put them in and (laughs) (laughs) let me give you an example from from my debut of like reverse engineering so i know cass and rowena have have read that so they'll know what I'm, I'm talking about. Um, so in, in here now and then there's a discussion about um, like you, they, like, why can't they go further back in time? Like they can go about like a hundred to 150 years back in time. And it's like, it's, it's a discussion about energy limits. Basically it's very, very brief. Um, and the reason why that came up was because when we were approaching the final draft, my editor sent me this list of questions. She said, like, someone's going to ask these questions. You have to seal them off. And so because of that, I actually built in, like, what I thought were fairly reasonable reasons. But th- And then I, I just inserted lines here and there, um, like, to, to explain it. And, and I try to make it very quick, like, one-line type of thing where, um, you know, it's enough to show that I've thought about it. But like I didn't come up with it on my own. It's like I needed that prompt in there. So that's the kind of like reverse engineering that I do, where it's like there is a plot problem, or there's a p- potential like reader consistency problem or plot hole problem, and so I just have to make some shit up to <laughs> to, to seal it off. The and the the hard part 
the hard part really isn't like coming up with something. It's making sure it's consistent. Right. And that's why I need my spreadsheets. So <laughs> what I do is, is like when I'm writing probably maybe like my, my third layer of draft, like after I've gone through plotting and character and I have a rough idea of like the, the prose is like 90% good. Then I do a read through where while I'm polishing the prose and like acting, adding in some character quirks, which is another spreadsheet. Um, then I'm also like making notes about um, like where, what type of like world questions are coming up to just make it feel a little bit more immersive. And then when I finish that pass, like I'll just sit down with my list and just start like writing out like, okay, well, you know, if they, <clears throat> if they're cooking in the future, what kind of tools are they going to use? And then, you know, I, I make a list of stuff up. And then I go back and I just start inserting things back there. So it is the complete opposite of Marshall's <laughs> method. It's interesting how like we're just, you know, different writers come up with like their own like completely different methods, but we still come out with a book in the end. <laughs> I I liked what you said about um the idea that someone's gonna have a question about this. Because I feel like that spurs a lot of world building especially now, you know, in, in our internet age when fans will spend more time dissecting and they will, and they will, they can ask us questions, you know, they can come after us, they can, they can come find us. Um, if you wanted to ask J.R.R. Tolkien something about Lord of the Rings, you had to, you know, like write him a letter and track him down in England and all that stuff. But I'm just on Twitter, they can find me anytime. And so I feel like a lot of the instinct for world building has perhaps expanded as that has become a more usual thing, you know, expecting that the reader will ask these questions and um, in some ways not just take take it on faith as much as perhaps they once did. We've gotten more but, used to dissecting written works, I think. Right. My editor, like the, the it, this has become easier for me the more that I have done it. <clears throat> but the first time around, I was like, you know, my, my editor said, like, you need more world building in here. And I was just like, holy shit, what does that mean? <laughs> it was very intimidating. But, you know, she said very specifically, like, you know, it's the iceberg model. Like, know everything under the surface, but then just show, you know, the, the tip. Uh, especially for the, the, the sci-fi with feels that I'm writing, like, a lot of my readers are not going to want, they're not going to crave the same type of, world details as you know one of your readers uh, like i i'm sure there's a plenty of crossover in the middle but like there's going to be like the i want my fantasy and i want to know like what the magic system is at where i i will get you know the the literary fiction readers who cross over into like this is a little bit of genre and i can take it so i i have to i have to know enough that if i get asked the questions it's going to make sense. And I think it's important to know that too, just from an internal consistency perspective, because the worst thing about, I think is if you world build, but you break your own rules and then everything falls apart. Mm -hmm. um, and, and being a fan of star Wars and star Trek and doctor who, I, I know this from my own nitpicky. You know? <laughs> and, and then like, I love how doctor who, like they just hand wave it with saying like time travel, anything is possible. So they kind of get away from that. Um, but then the other two series, like, you know, th they have much more stringent rules. And, like, when they break them, they, like, they work so fast to retcon that shit. <laughs> <laughs> and, and that's only because of, like, what Cass was saying, like, in the internet age, in the Twitter age, it's like people find out and people get mad. <laughs> so. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know that the original Star Trek really expected that anyone was ever going to watch those episodes again, you right. know? It's right. Like... To that level, too. Right. You, they, they wrote the episode with the intention, like, people are going to watch this once and forget about it. And now they, <laughs> now TV writers have to write with the idea of, like, you know, in a week, there's going to be a fan base making a wiki that has recorded every single detail that has occurred <laughs> already. and we ha And then they're going to come back to us and be like, you know, last week you said this was impossible, and then, then this week that's just what they did to solve the problem, and and that's you know that's fascinating because you you basically have to anticipate what those questions are going to be. Though when you said your your editor asked for just more world building, and then was just kind of vague about that, that reminded me when when I was querying Thorn of Denton Hill, I had one 
agent who's like, just do another rewrite, you know, do do me a rewrite where you just add more world building. And I'm like, what do you mean by add more world building? Cause it's like, do you want me to just like add more like clothing detail? Do you want me to add more of this? Do you want me to just do some history? To, like, what do you, what do you mean when you say add more world building? Cause I can, I can dump in a bunch of stuff, but is that really like useful on a storytelling level? So and I got a vague answer, and spoiler, that was not my agent. Um. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think, like, well, I mean, we did, we, we had a call, and we, we talked about it, and my editor was very specific, like, you know, she said, like, don't add info dumps. Just add, like, little touches here and there. Actually, so in, in here and now and then, she did actually request one scene for this, and, like, right at the at the start of act two when when kin wakes up in the future he is rushed off to like the situation room where like they're actively like doing a time travel investigation and she my editor specifically requested a scene like that because she's like this is a time travel corruption agency we need to know we have to see them in action mm. and you can put in all of like the mechanics of how they operate what their protocols are like what you know what rules they abide by and how they communicate with each other you could put it all in one chapter if you do it here so so she kind of sparked that idea with with the i with the intention of like we need more world building because we have to answer these questions somewhere so that's probably one of the few times where i actually wrote a specific chapter to enlighten the world building and other times it's like just find an appropriate spot within the prose to mention like you know the color of you know future car or cup holders <laughs> or whatever like that is the exact opposite problem i have had <laughs> i've been told Cass, you really can't do 10 pages on the electoral system <laughs> you you need to cut that down honey nobody wants to read that you know, like, false because so, I, I want to but i, I i've take your I, point i've gotten that specific note too <laughs> <laughs> was it your parliament it was, was it your my parliamentary parliament system what my beta readers uh -huh, is like uh -huh. i i literally work at the texas senate doing like taking you know the minutes of what happens here <laughs> and i got bored with this so you, you <laughs> need to <tell> like <laughs> so the way that I, i've looked at like the spectrum of world building it's like you have on one end you have like contemporary fiction where like your world building is very light it's like the season the city you know like the the time period you know like the the economic of the economics of like what kind of cars they're driving or whatever it's like it's very very light and then on the other hand you have rpg manual yeah and so <laughs> it's like if you take those two extremes as like you know 10% on, you know, contemporary suburbia story and 10% on RPG manual. And then like what's acceptable in published fiction is like the 80% in the middle. And it just depends on like your own personal type and genre and stuff like that. Yeah. And I, th and, and I think there is like a, a element of brand to it too. I mean, it's like, you know, you have not only how much you include, but what kind of stuff you include mm -hmm. and from what angle and, how you include it, you know, are you more of a, you know, and, and part of this is, is POV too, but, you know, is it more kind of Hawkeye view of the whole thing, giving you details, or is it really specific, you know, tactile to the character driven kind of stuff? I mean, all of that is really kind of personal choice in terms of, of how you as a writer want to, want to tackle it. There is this beautiful piece out there. It's, not a published story, but it's called, it's this story that's just like on a message board somewhere called David Weber orders a pizza. And it is this story. It's a short story from the point of view of a guy who just takes the order for, for, for a pizza and then delivers it someplace, but breaks down every bit of tech and world building to the same like degree of crunchiness that like a David Weber on our Harrington book does of like all these things that we, that are just normal things of like how the phone works, how you write down addresses, like every little detail of like the history of pizza and putting cheese on sauce and all this stuff that you would, that you take for absolute granted because it's just the normal things in our world. But 
given that same level of breakdown. Like there's there's one bit when when driving to deliver the pizza of like analyzing the stop sign of like the octagonal sign with the red with the bright red, <laughs> <light. laughs> so it would That's stand awesome. out and and it's kind of beautiful. This is amazing. Yeah. Like I said, it's not you can't find it properly published anywhere. You pretty much just have to Google. David Weber orders a pizza and find like it works as the first thing that comes up and find <laughs> and it is just a post oh, on a message it? board and it's <laughs> it's amazing it's because it it in reading that it forces you to analyze those world those info dump choices that you make so many times in how you how you present yourself and I think yeah. Go ahead. The, the how you do it, I think, is a lot. You want to avoid the, as you know, Bob, problem in, in explaining things. Yeah. Um, the, as you know, this is the way we always do things. Like, well, then why'd you have to fucking say it? It's the way we always do things. And we both um, know. Yeah. I just like to say okay, like, things that we both know occasionally, just to reiterate them for myself. Yeah. And sometimes that can happen in an early draft, you know, as you're still sort of talking it out to yourself, but it's the kind of thing you want to, like, there's probably a gentler way to introduce that concept to the reader in later drafts to massage that a bit so it's not quite so whoomp with the information. Of course, that's why so many times our best friends are our characters who are idiots and therefore <laughs> they don't know anything and they can be like thrown into the mission control room and be like, what's going on? Well, let me tell you what's going on. <laughs> yeah, but the I, fish I out of water <laughs> syndrome. It, it's so effective for being like this, you know, you're going to be our audience surrogate type of thing. And then like, you know, the, the stupid details about like, why does the toilet flush upwards instead of downwards? You know, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I just I thought that up right that. now, but I am <laughs> sitting next to a litter box, so maybe it's on my mind. <laughs> yeah, I think that, I mean, there's so many different ways that the fish out of water can manifest itself. It can be just being thrust into a new culture, but it's also, you know, when you write a portal fantasy, that's where your, you know, average person with readers assumed knowledge lands in a fantasy world. It can be your time traveler. It can be your scientific person going to a new planet. It, it's an easy in to make the reader and the character on the same level, um, which can be a way to, to slide all those world building details in a little more bluntly, I think. Um, yeah. as, as a parent, I'm really surprised that more writers haven't included a seven-year-old just like tagging along <laughs> with the character. Like, so why do we do it like this? But why? <laughs> <laughs> I did uh, in the beginning at the end. I did get because Sunny is six years old in that, and she's growing up in a, a, a after quarantine in a post apocalyptic world. And I didn't want to go there too much because, like, I, I thought like you know, you don't want to hit that device too often. But it was so easy to do that. It was like, <laughs> oh, let's go into her school, and her school has changed. So let's look at the stuff there. And then when we bring up like how it used to be, well, why is it like that? That, that was. <laughs> That was really nice. But um, what I was going to say is there's a technique in video games that is so effective for, for this type of incidental world building. And that's like in, in, in Fallout or Mass Effect Andromeda did this really well, like emails and messages and like, you know, other types of ephemera. And I find that um, it's when, when I actually, when I was writing a beginning at the end, my agent like I did this massive revision on it because it used it was originally two points of view linear and then it became four points of view non-linear flashbacks news articles and all this other shit in there and at first I was really daunted by it but then my editor or my my agent was like if you use these pieces to like to color in the world and tell like a separate story like your your world is big enough that you can do that and then it became a lot of fun to write just like these little objective or not objective, but like standalone pieces that give hints to like a bigger thing, but they're not concerned immediately with like the existing characters. And mm -hmm. even as an exercise, um, because coming up with some of this is really, really hard for me. And, and so for someone who's struggling with it or being a reluctant world builder, like just writing a news article from their fictional world suddenly colored in so many details that because you're pulling out of the, the emotional situation of your characters and instead just looking at it through the lens of a reporter. So that, that was another tool. I, in video games, you have the luxury of making it optional to read, so you can't just like info dump 
you know, 5,000 emails into your book. <laughs> but, uh, but like sprinkling it in there and at least using it as a crafting tool is actually what I found to be really effective. What I love about that is as a historian, that is often the kind of place we get the best information from. It's not necessarily the written chronicle of events. It's, we found this letter from a soldier to his mom, and it tells us so many details about what his life was like. Newspapers are fantastic resources. And, and so it speaks to that. It speaks to that sort of like, what is really important is not necessarily always the bird's eye view. What is important in the world is often what's immediate and close to the characters. I thought um, Chuck Wendig's uh, Wanderers did a great job with that too. The beginning of each chapter has like a little something. It's like a clip, a clip from an NPR or a clip from Rachel Maddow or something from a newspaper, but in his also pandemic imagined future. And, and the tone of those really sort of set the mark for each chapter, even though it wasn't directly related to the character story. I, I think that's always the goal is having that kind of, that kind of depth where, like in a video game that's an open world game, you could conceivably wander off the track of the plot and dig through somebody's letters or dig, you know, read an article in the newspaper and get some deeper sense of what happened, what's also happening in the world or how we got to this point or things like that. Now, obviously, you can't do that in just a straight narrative track, but if you can build in the sense that that exists... Like, outside of video games and maybe some immersive theater, I'm reminded of if any of you ever got a chance to do Sleep No More in, in Manhattan. Yes. It is... Tried to open every damn door in that oh, building. Every okay. drawer, every cabinet. I was touching everything. So for friend, Could not for do that in the age of COVID, but oh my gosh. No more. <laughs> it is this amazing show where you... The whole show is on, like, four floors of a hotel that you can just wander around and you can like f you know stay in one place and see the scenes that happen there or you can like choose to just follow one performer wherever they go and do see what they do or you can ignore the performers completely and just go into rooms and read through journal entries and read through through letters you can you can you make it your own experience by how you walk through the show and and it's really a beautiful, fascinating thing because of the wild. sheer amount of depth they've put into into building the set of these four floors of a, of of the building that it's in that you're free to wander about through. That makes me think: how much money did it cost to make all that? <laughs> I mean, it. That's in New York. That's, yeah, it takes over a five-story yeah. building in Manhattan. So you already wow. that tells you. How much money? Must have... It's like ten thousand square feet. It's down in the meatpacking district. It's, but they've also, I mean, like from the minute it opened, they've been raking in cash hand over fist yeah. until, mm. you know, the yes. last six months. But I've been twice. It's amazing. But it is that kind of like immersiveness of literally everywhere you look, there is something that contributes to the story. And and like you said, we obviously can't do that in a book. But if you can give that sense, that if your characters did wander off, there is something for them to wander two right they don't just yeah. disappear when they when they go off screen right kind of um we've referenced before the the shoddy set <laughs> that you have you know like the the crappy 1980s fantasy movie set where they have ye tavern <laughs> and ye roadside <laughs> and ye castle and that's like it um so yeah i think you know there could be something worthwhile in following your character around a little bit and just showing the things that they they see um, I did a lot of, um, in my book, like street scenes and things that, you know, the character is just noticing as one does interesting crap happening on the street. Um, because then you kind of start to have that sense, not just of the whole world out there, but all these people also have their own lives. Um, which can also, if you're doing sort of an overarching big picture plot line, like a revolution or something, you're looping that in to the plot as well the emotionality of like okay there are a lot of people who are being affected by what's what's happening mm. so when you have a big rich world you can more you know intimately pull at those big stakes because the big stakes are also personal to a whole bunch of people in a big rich world so what you were saying about how like you know you're you're bringing your characters down the street and you're just kind of looking around and, and seeing things in passing 
I, I'm curious to see your e each of your techniques for like coming up with ideas because when when I am forced to to come up with something, I will like pretend basically that like I'm seeing like a first person video game type of thing and I, I'm with my characters and I'm looking around and I'm able to pause and like look up and down look around and that's where like the details start to come in and and again it's like I cannot build it from the ground up I need to like these prompts and this immersion to try to force it out of my brain so Marshall <laughs> I know you have you know these these you know tomes of like governments <laughs> and magic systems and stuff i'm curious like do you do you is everyone here like operate how do you guys operate for me i think when, when i'm thinking specifically about like building those little scenes i actually think a lot of it comes from having trained as an actor and what i am often thinking of is the stage business because most of like where I start with story is I start with character first and almost every story I've ever worked on has begun with either an, a very striking image of a character or a bit of conversation. Dialogue is so often where I begin. And that gives me a sense of time and place. It gives me a sense of aesthetic. I usually then build the place. Um, I have my dollies before I have my sandbox, but <laughs> I sort of build them together. Uh, well, as Marshall said, he has to have the, the place before he gets his action figures out. I, I have my dollies and my sandbox at the same time, and they work together. But when I'm thinking about building on the granular level, if I have two characters having a conversation, I'm thinking about the things they are doing while talking. You know, what are they snacking on? What are they sitting on? What is the stage business? Are they doing their hair? And if they're doing their hair, you know, what pins are they using? Are they having to sew their hair? What's going on with that? What are they interacting with? the way that I would be interacting with some, something if I was on a stage, you know? If they're fiddling with their jewelry, what kind of jewelry is it? And what does that tell me about then all the sorts of things we talk about on this podcast? What metals they have, what level of metal working they have, how rich they are, all those things. That's where I start. I, I think of it as stage business. I, I come at it from a Page very business. similar place in that yeah, I think about, about my acting background also. And I think, but I think about... So... As an actor, I was okay. I was never a great actor, but I usually got hard same friend. Hard same. I usually got parts like you know, fourth citizen or or Anthony's servant. You know, these bits that just come into and do a little bit and then and then vanish again. And so, I always try and write characters and especially incidental characters from that sort of actor's perspective of like, would these be an interesting character to play, or if I if I was the intro, you know, first first acting job actor who got this job, what interesting things would I find in playing this one-line character or something like that? And that's just, that that is a point of view that I always try and look at things with, of bringing that sort of vitality to, to every detail. Like, and same thing of, like, since I've done set dressing, since I've done sound design, like, thinking along each line of, like, how... Would the person who put this, you know, who put this shop here, like, what little details would they think about in building it? And since I've done, on a theater level, every single job that can be done of putting everything together on the stage, on that, you know, physical, tactile level, I think about it on the same level of what I put on the page. So I'm a door. <laughs> um... <laughs> And You're in safe place I here. get Welcome. really jazzed about research. <laughs> like I, I really enjoy researching really obscure, tiny little things. And so, my my history stuff and and living history stuff often inspires deep dives on research. And I'll find these these little tidbits that I'm like, that is so cool. I gotta file that, and someday that's gonna come into a story. Um, so I have these like mental files full of like random junk. Um, that occasionally percolates up um, because most of my settings are in some way historically inspired. They're never exact historicals, but there's a lot of historical inspiration. So um, like as a, for example, um, in my book, there's a scene where um, in Torn, Sophie is walking down the street and she encounters um, a, a ballad seller. And I had discovered this in um, researching 
like The Cries of London by Francis Wheatley and these sketches by a guy named Paul Sandby who sketched from life and, and would basically go out and like draw street people. Um, you know, people who were selling things, people who were begging, people who were, you know, just walking on the street. And one um, one group of people that he sketched a lot were broadside sellers who were like these really poor people who would buy cheap broadsides and then sell them for money. So they had an arrangement with the print shop. And some of these were ballads, like songs. They were like these whole sheets printed with song lyrics. And they would actually sing the songs to get people to buy them and to teach them the melody because the melody wasn't usually written on the sheet of lyrics. And I was like, this is just so cool. You have people standing on a street corner basically like singing. And then I ended up tying it into the story in that um, the whole second book ends up having a lot of um, stuff with magic and music. And this is the first discovery that the character makes of, oh, music might be able to carry magic, too. And it's this brief little moment. But it was definitely inspired by being a huge dork um, <laughs> who has a mental Rolodex full of, like, potential world-building tidbits. Um, so a lot of my stuff, yeah, comes from that. It comes from little, tiny, like, slice-of-life, material culture stuff. But as a reenactor, it's the things you've also experienced on a tactile level. So yeah. I, yes. I think I think that can be such a huge factor of like experiencing the physical reality of something like that can help you think about those details when you're when you're in the writing process, I think. Right. So I had a question. And even even though we are all different world builders and approach this in different ways, are there any ways that like you get in your own way? world building or that you just really trip up when world building or just have have issues i think I, I talked a little bit about like how i have a hard time coming up with something completely new like i <clears throat> it's very easy for me to come up with an analog of like okay well if we use spatulas now in the future, they use ones that can shapeshift to, you know, meet your needs because of the material that they're using or whatever. Like that sort of like take everyday objects in our lives and then transport it into like a, a different environment. Like I can come up with that. Like with my with my alien abduction story, it was so hard to actually come up with like what the aliens were like you know what what why are they fighting you know what what do they look like all these things like i am i am keeping some of it vague so i don't have to define it <laughs> because i get to focus on the characters anyways but part of that is just fear because like i don't know how to do it and like i i hit up some of my favorite you know space opera and sci-fi people and i'm like you know, what are some things that would be unique and are not just a ripoff of the Borg? <laughs> so, <laughs> so, like, coming up with something just completely original is just so freaking hard for me. It's so much easier for me just to, like, riff off of, like, more minute, like, real-world details. So, I was writing a scene where two characters are looking at the night sky and noting like which planet within which constellation. And rather than just write that or just like put brackets, I had to, because I'm me and get my own way along those lines, it, I had to make a whole spreadsheet of all the different planets and all the constellations and figure out the orbital mechanics math of what's where in the sky on any given night. And now I have that spreadsheet and I can tell you the exact phase of the moon and where everything is in the sky on any given night. But I had, like, my brain would not let me not do that and then write the one sentence in this. <laughs> you have your own star chart. I do. <laughs> that's amazing. Because, like, because... But that's one of those things, like, I will have that moment where, because a character is just happens to be doing a certain thing that I don't, I don't have the exact answer for, I will drill down on figuring out the exact answer before I can before I can let myself write anymore and so that's that's definitely a problem that's like that is not that is not a helpful way to, to, to manifest this sort of obsessive world building but 
But now I have that spreadsheet, so now I can just refer to it whenever I need to. But You know, admitting you have a problem is the first step. And... He's not going to recover. No, what are you he's talking not. about? <laughs> See, what we need to do is get, get a... a, a, a game programmer to sponsor this podcast <laughs> and then you can you can actually make it come to life kind of like with critical role how like you know they got their own media empire now it's like the world building for masochists world uh turn it into a video game i'm and for it star charts. for it i'm ten thousand percent for it where, where i trip myself up is definitely the instincts to overcomplicate. on that spectrum you were talking about mike like i am by nature by instinct barely this side of the writing an rpg manual <laughs> my instinct is to write encyclopedias because like when i look at a map i want to fill in every corner of it you know i want to know what's going on in every single little country and and characters spring to mind you know when i'm thinking about each location i start thinking about characters and about their stories and that's just it's too much it's, it's just, just just too much or i fall into rowena like you were saying the, the research pit where the current draft of the Shakespearean theater influence second world I'm currently working on right now. A lot of that draft is just things I think are cool about early modern theater plunked into it. And it's like, I'm going to have to, I'm going to have to polish that up later. But right now it's just sort of like, this is all really neat information. You should know about this. This is how theaters worked. And then it's like, that's not good storytelling, but that comes later for me. Plot and good storytelling comes after the overexcitement of I want to tell all the stories simultaneously, which you really can't do. You know, I think that mine is that I shut myself down a lot with world building because I'm such mm -hmm. a history geek and well, and I'm married to a physics and astronomy and engineer geek. Um, so I like I'm constantly fact checking myself on like second world fantasy, which in some ways is good because you don't say stupid things that are just like, that's impossible. The world doesn't work like that. Physics doesn't work like that. You know, like fiber dye doesn't work like that. You can't just do that. But at the same time, I'm writing second world fantasy. I have magic. I can kind of like do shit. I could make this stuff up. And sometimes I, I feel like I am way more likely to like shut myself down on like, oh, I need to research this and see if this is actually possible. And, and, it's actually part of the magic of second world fantasy to hand wave a little bit of that and say, you can have that if you want to just, you can have it. It's fun. You are holding the magic wand. <laughs> yeah. You can, you can transform a, it. I have an anecdote about that from uh, Marshall. You may, you may be familiar with Richard Garriott. Who oh yeah. Made the Ultima series on PC. So when he was making, um, I think it was Ultima three. So this is like circa 1984 ish or so in, in that series like the phases of the moon open up these portals right. and based on the phases of the moon like that's where you go to different things and it was inspired by time bandits the the movie from from the 70s and so he went to the theater every night for like two weeks to write down like the mechanics of like the the travel in there to see <laughs> if there was any logic to it and he re because he wanted to kind of use some sort of like same rhythm for his moon gate system and he realized that there was nothing <laughs> it was just all for the plot <laughs> so he got in his own way and saw time bandits 12 times <laughs> only to realize it was plot crap <laughs> that's right it was Stephen moffat hand waving that's beautiful but like yeah like i can i can totally see that like but but wait, but how but how do the portals in Time Bandits work? They they just work. If if actually exactly. if I remember correctly, it's been a long time since I've seen that movie, but I did see that about a billion times as a child. Like like literally the way the portals worked was that they were the they were basically like the glitches of the universe. <laughs> like they they how they worked was by things not working. Like that's just the holes falling through <laughs> falling through the universe and that's how they, you know, went from place to place and time to time because and the map was just this bizarre map of like you know like this is where all the holes are. And the main characters, their job was supposed to be go fix the holes, but instead they're like, what if we just use the holes to, like, rob stuff and have fun? <laughs> yeah. And, and I think, too, it, it's like, you. I, 
I believe that that movie was kind of made in like the Raiders of the Lost Ark type movie where it was like reverse engineered. But then you have a guy who like codes and DMs, you know, D&D and like wants to know all the science behind stuff. And so he goes into it and he tries to find like a logical pattern to just hand wavy bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> so there, are, that... there we have our spectrum of world building. <laughs> and I think that might fall into the category of like, no one was expecting anyone to watch Time Bandits 12 times. Exactly. Yes. In the same way that like, yeah, we were like we were talking about earlier when it comes to like TV shows and things. Now the bingeability makes some of those inconsistencies a lot more prominent. Mm-hmm. Uh, thinking, of, I, I was thinking the other day because I watched one of these episodes about Star Trek and how Klingon marriage changes a lot in the like six years between when Worf is just screaming at Kalar in a, um, a, a a holographic forest to when there's suddenly like he's trying to marry Jadzia and there's these elaborate rituals and like at the time. I don't know how much people were, were connecting those two thoughts, but now watching them close together, it's like, wait a minute. That's not what you said a few years ago. <laughs> but no one, you know, no one was expecting that the rewatchability wasn't the same. I, I do appreciate in, in Star Trek, though, how, like, especially now with the new series that, like, they're addressing those types of things with just, like, throwaway lines <laughs> in there. Uh, I, I, one thing that I always appreciated about, like, Stephen Moffat is not always the best writer for Doctor Who, but he does a lot of right stuff. But like in terms of his world building, he throws, he always puts in a throwaway line that shows you just enough that like he thought about the question you're about to ask. He doesn't have an explanation, but he wants to <laughs> wink at you that he thought about it, so you don't have to think about it. And like that's kind of where I kind of err on the side of caution, where I'm like, I'm going to show you that like. Yes, I understand your question, and here's enough that, like, if you just took it on a surface level, like, I have sealed it off. It is not a plot hole anymore. If you want to go deeper, yes, it probably is a fucking plot hole, but let's not think about it. Um, it's like in the movie Thank You for Smoking, when they're talking about, like, cigarettes in space, and it's like, no, it's a one-line fix. Thank God we invented the whatever device. Like, or the, um, that is a thing in, you, in can you can do. You can yeah. In Star Trek, the Heisenberg compensator for warp drive, it's like, you know, <laughs> is it impossible to, you know, use this amount of energy? Like, no, we have a compensator for that variable. Done. <laughs> Fucking done. It compensates. Says it right there on the label. It's what it does. Exactly. <laughs> it does what it says on the tin. <laughs> and that, too, is valid world building. It is. Yes, it is. Well, I think we are coming up on our hour or have actually perhaps even are, surpassed our hour. Surpassed and we could just it, keep going okay. because we're having Mike, too good a time. Been, yeah, it's been really fun. Um, but speaking of valid world building, um, I think you have something for our world. I do. To impart I do. To us. This should go in a Wikipedia entry. So I have <laughs> we ought to get one of those. A tra- <laughs> we need we're getting called out so bad on that, y'all. <laughs> You should ask uh, Fonda Lee has, has has talked about that. You should <laughs> you should ping her about it. So I have for you a traveling pop minstrel band called the Rolling Moonstones. <laughs> the problem with the Rolling Moonstones is that their music is so popular that rival cover bands have formed. <laughs> and because there's no real way to verify the authenticity of the original band. They are constantly having to prove that they are the real Rolling Moonstones. And they even were turned down a big gig because one city was convinced they were dead. Because just the week prior, it turned out that two local cover bands wound up getting into a duel to the death over who owned that territory. So rumor has it one person from those two dead bands has survived this fight and took all the money from both bands. And so I propose to you a side quest or side story for please help the Rolling Moonstones recover this lost money and take this surviving member of um, their two rival bands and bring that person to justice. I so want to take this and weave in Mike Underwood's um, rival martial arts schools and and integrate them somehow into, into one beautiful story. And like, it's it's so... It's so right, like I, I can I can smell it, but I don't quite know what it is. A yet. musical duel <laughs> off with martial yeah. arts and magic. <laughs> but I love it. I love it so much. It's fantastic. 
That was gorgeously detailed. I love it. It's beautiful. <laughs> See, and you say you can't world world I, build. I can world build when I take a stupid <laughs> idea. Like, let me get some. Let me just throw these minstrels in trouble, and then everything explodes. But I needed the prompt from you guys first. <laughs> Mike, that's our secret. It's all stupid <laughs> ideas. <laughs> we just gloss them up and make them look real shiny. <laughs> Well, Mike, thank you so much for joining us. This has been a delight. Come back anytime. Absolute joy. Thank you for having me on one of my favorite podcasts. I wish I still had a commute because then I could listen to more episodes. (laughs) Just go up down the stairs a bunch of times. Yeah, there you go. Hi you! Thanks for listening to this episode of World Building for Masochists and letting us help you overcomplicate your writing life. Our next episode goes up on October 14th when we'll be discussing aging and the phases of life. We really hope you liked this episode. If you did, please do take a minute to tell a friend, shout about us on the internet, or leave a review on iTunes. And if you've got questions or just want to tell us how cute we are, there's a number of ways to contact us. We're on Twitter as at WorldBuildCast, and our email is WorldBuildCast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. We also have a Discord chat room linked on the About the Show page of our website if you want to come chat with us and other fans of the podcast. We'd love for you to share the worlds you're making and help us all build until it hurts. <laughs> <laughs>